now, Lord, as we sit still, would you please help us to have ears to hear the still, small voice of your Spirit as he takes the Word and amplifies it, as we apply it to our lives and we strengthen ourselves in our Christian walk. Thank you for the grace that you give us to live the Christian life and for the great gospel to which we've given our lives and that has transformed our lives. Thank you for the instruction now that we will receive gladly. Use it well within us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the stories that I always enjoy telling, uh, lots of times kids, when I speak at camps, I use this story. And I've used it here different times, so some of you have heard it. But it was the summer that I was 17 years old. After I graduated from high school, I went to work in Alaska for my uncle, who had an air taxi business there. And one of the things that was unique about living there is there was really no grocery store in the village of Imanic, Alaska, on the middle mouth of the Yukon River, way up uh, uh, near the Bering Sea, 10 miles from the Bering Sea. My uncle had a business there of flying small planes, bush. He had a float plane and super cubs and so forth. And he took me up there to work for him, kind of be his heavy lifter. I had young cousins and my aunt was there and I lived with them for that summer working and My uncle's business would take him to Anchorage where he would, on occasion, load up his airplane on an empty run back with groceries. And one of the things that he would do is buy eggs, for example, by the carton. Well, one summer morning that summer, I was up ahead of everyone else and I was going to fix myself breakfast. And not only would my aunt order eggs in bulk for the groceries back in the storage room of the kitchen, but she would order slabs of bacon and instead of buying pre-sliced bacon she would buy sides of bacon and so I was up early ahead of my cousins and getting ready for work that day and I decided to fix the kind of breakfast my dad would like and I took the butcher knife went back there since no one was up I could really get me some bacon and I slabbed off some bacon and I put it in that big black frying pan and and I had that bacon sizzling, man, and the grease was getting... You're going to have to go to IHOP after this, aren't you? And uh, had that bacon grease building up in that frying pan. And I went back in the room and I got myself some eggs out of the carton. And uh, I decided, being a kid, it would be good to open that egg up and drop it from up in the air down into that grease. And I knew enough to step back after I opened up the egg and I cracked it on the side of the stove. And, and I opened it up and immediately saw that... What came out of the egg was just black slime. And I had ruined my good bacon grease with a rotten egg. And it immediately filled that whole room with just a rotten smell. One of the lessons that the Lord has used in that little image with me is that eggs and people have a lot in common. That sometimes they can look okay on the outside, but they can be rotten on the inside and As I invite you to turn back to 1 Timothy chapter 3 this morning, we're talking about the integrity of spiritual leadership. That is, what's on the inside of our leaders? And today, we're going to take it home. We're taking it home, literally. The Apostle Paul is going to challenge us in the criteria and credentialing of spiritual leaders in the local church. That is, who's eligible to lead us spiritually Not only must you look on the inside and make sure that their spiritual integrity is intact and that they're not full of rot. That's what the list has been doing that we've been camped on all summer in 1 Timothy chapter 3. But today, the Apostle Paul, in verses 4 and 5, 
is going to say, now what I need you to do is I need you to go take the lid off his house and I need you to look inside his house and what is this guy like at home? Because if he's not living the life at home, he's not supposed to lead in the church. It's an interesting concept. It's a simple logic. Totally makes sense. And I think it will benefit us as we receive this instruction originally written by the Apostle Paul to Pastor Timothy at the church in Ephesus so that he would appoint proper leadership. One of the problems in our churches today, one of the reasons that the gospel is not going forward, and one of the reasons that so many churches are having problems is because ineligible men are in leadership. And as difficult as it is, we sometimes have to look at people and have to say, you're not ready for leadership. As you well know, as you've been here for the sermon series, we're challenging all of our men and all of us that these are not only the minimum criteria for leadership, but this is our goal, to walk spiritually, to have this kind of integrity that's mentioned on this list. Let's read our text. It's 1 Timothy chapter 3, and it's a good list. And we've been building a message out of almost each one of these items. Paul says to Timothy, it's a trustworthy saying If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. That's the spiritual leadership of the church. Therefore, an overseer, he must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Now our text for today, verses 4 and 5. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. Now here's why, verse 5. Here's his simple logic. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? It's an interesting concept, isn't it? And so, as we've been examining what's going on in this man and his spiritual character and how it spills out in hospitality and in his ability to have credibility as a leader and as a teacher in the local church, because if he's not right on the inside, it's going to eventually come out. It will eventually show, and sometimes it breaks open with great damage and stench in the local church when a bad egg is in leadership. The Apostle Paul gives us one more test. He says, it's an additional test. He says, I want you to go to his home, and I want you to tour his home, and I want you to look carefully, what is this guy like on the home front? One thing for sure is that if he can't lead himself, he can't lead others, and if he can't even lead his family, he cannot lead the church. Let's break it down. I want to make three observations out of our text here. Three principles that the Apostle Paul is teaching. The first is, not, is only implied in the text. It's, it's not um, exactly what Paul is writing about, but I found it to be an evidence, uh, an, an implication in the text. Number one observation and lesson that we learn from Paul's text here in verses 4 and 5, and the proving ground of the home for the spiritual leader is number one, the implication of male headship in the home. The implication of male headship in the home. Now, Paul's not explicitly teaching it right here, but it's implied. Notice what he says. He says, he must manage his household with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his household, how will he care for God's church? 
It's written to a man. It's written about a man in his home. It's male leadership. And you know, it wasn't too long ago, a few months ago, that we dealt with that interesting and not simple passage that's above in chapter 2. Let your eyes go up to 2.12, where the Apostle Paul, and in our culture, in our day, this is kind of dangerous turf and it's somewhat controversial. He says, let all women learn quietly with all submissiveness, verse 11. And then verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. He's talking about leadership in the church, teaching and preaching ministries in the church. That's an interesting concept. Some people find that quite offensive. As you know, it's based upon the theological foundation of God's design and order. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3 clearly says, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of the wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. God has a chain of command. God teaches male leadership in the church, and so I think it's important to point out that with the teaching of male headship in the home and with the teaching of male headship in the church, it's a consistency. God isn't going to ask a man to be in charge of the spiritual leadership, the oversight and the management of his home on the home front and then go to church on Sunday morning and have women lead him. It doesn't work. It's consistent with the home front and the church front. And this is implicit in this passage. It's implied, but I think it's worth reminding ourselves. This is not necessarily an easy subject for people, and I don't want to camp on it. We have clear teaching in Ephesians chapter 5, for example, beginning with around verse 25. Um, But I want you to turn to Colossians as I remind you of the Ephesians 5 passage. Turn to Colossians chapter 3. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Just back to your left in your Bible, a few pages. Colossians 3. But in that Ephesians 5 passage, which is very similar, that's that passage that a lot of people don't like, especially women, where it says, wives, submit yourselves to your husband as the church submits to Christ. That's a high calling. You mean this guy that I married, 200 pounds of dead weight here, I've got to submit myself to him? Well, that's what God called you to. God called for the man to be the leader in the home. And you know, God hardwired us for that, didn't he? He hardwired men to want to be leading Sometimes we usurp that, or sometimes we aren't good at it like we should, but deep inside, I think, I think that men love leadership. Men love oversight. They love strength. And the man in Ephesians 5 is called to really an even a more difficult task than where the wife is to submit to her husband. The man is called to do what? To love his wife the way Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Listen, I've maintained that our wives would not have any difficulty with the submission part if we would get the loving them like Christ loved the church part down pat. Man, any woman that doesn't want to be loved like that and give himself up for her, I think God hardwired women to want to have a man who, who just gives his life to oversee her and to keep her strong. In Colossians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul touches on this as well in verse 18. He uses that submission word again. He said, wives, submit to your husbands. Why? Because that is 
fitting in the Lord. It's God's plan. It's God's plan in the home. It's fitting in the Lord. It's correct. It's the way things are supposed to work. See that word? As it is fitting in the Lord. And then again, a reminder, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Why does he remind them of it? Because when you're in charge and you're the boss, you sometimes want to use the big club. You want to use your strength to lead instead of a loving, gentle spirit. He reminds them then to not dis not embitter or provoke their children lest they become discouraged. Why? Because the man is in charge at the home. And I think it's important, back to 1 Timothy chapter 3, to just remind ourselves that the implication of male headship in the home is brought out right in this passage as he's speaking clearly and obviously in the passage to the man to be in charge of his home. And that what he does at home is a microcosm or a proving ground for the spiritual leadership he can bring to the church. God would not ask him to lead the home and then not lead the church. God is consistent. God has a plan. The second thing I want you to observe in this passage is really the heart of the passage. It's the teaching of the passage. And that is, number two, the qualification of proven leadership in the home. The qualification of proven leadership in the home. Here's the proving ground. Here's the, here's the field test. Okay? Let's look at our text. He must manage... That word has the idea of presiding over, the one who is the overseer of his home, who is to have, that word has an authority to it, who has authority over. So the man is called to manage his, ESV uses the word household, and that's a good word there, because household includes family, but it's more than that. It's everything that's connected to his home life. I take it that that means his front yard and his backyard and his shed and his garage and his car and his bank account, his checkbook, his basement, his attic. This is his house. This is his domain. That a man, as the overseer of his domain area, is to do what? He's to manage it well. He uses a Greek word, well, that it's a word that means good, intrinsically good, but it means more than that. It has the idea where it could actually... I understand from my commentaries, be translated excellent. He's to manage and oversee his household, his domain area. So that includes his children and his wife and his tools and and his dog and everything. He's to manage it well, not just good, but with excellence. And that word excellence in the Greek has a nuance to it of an aesthetic quality and and an aesthetically appealing quality. So the idea is that as you drive by your elder's house or your pastor's house or you see their property, it shouldn't be all junked up. You shouldn't be embarrassed to go to your pastor's property and think, oh, my word, and this guy's the pastor. And do you know what? If it was junked up, people would think that. Because whether you like it or not, you hold a high expectation for your elders and your pastor, don't you? And that's the way it should be. Because we are models. That's why not everybody is called. That's why not everybody is allowed to be there. Well, I'm not saying that you're to be hooty tooty and, and that everything has to be polished and that you're not normal people and that your garage can't get messy once in a while or most of the time or you would have to resign. I just have a lot of trouble with my garage. I can fit my good van in it every night, though. Well, not now. I just, I did some dumpster diving, but I'll avoid telling you about that. And, uh, I love used lumber, and I have my garage full of used lumber right now. Um, but anyway, 
Um, it's in order, though. It's in order. So here's the thing. He is to oversee his property well, that is, with, with an aesthetically appealing of role modeling. It shouldn't embarrass the congregation. It shouldn't be a disgraceful thing in the neighborhood to have one of the elders living next door because there's the one with all the tall weeds. He goes on to say, with all dignity. Now, in the NIV, it makes it, it, it talks about the children having an attitude. I think he's referencing clearly here, this dignity is the father's role, that that's the attitude with which he enforces or oversees the leadership of his home. He's to do it with a spiritual dignity. You're not to do it with the big club. You're not to dishearten your, your children. You're not to discourage or embitter your wife with your leadership because that can be the tendency. That's how a man looks at it. It's like, like Paris Island sergeant in charge of training. This is my house. This is the way we're going to do it. Everybody down. Give me 20. We're going to have order around here. That's not it. It's to be done with an integrity of love and, and, a, and, a, and a spirit that, is, that has a dignity, a spiritual dignity to it. But notice that it does call in the verse for him to keep his children submissive. He's to keep his children submissive. Now, I'm going to tell you a picture from a movie that I think you know that you'll understand what that word looks like because submissive comes from a word that is a military term that means to live underneath those that have rank over you with authority. Living under the authorities in your life. So, the father who is leading his home well and is overseeing his home is supposed to keep his children submissive. That is, they are to be under his authority and they are to know it and they are to act accordingly. And it's actually a military term of those lining up in rank from Highest rank to lowest rank, and everybody's underneath him. How about, how about Van Trapp with his whistle in Sound of Music? Remember when Sound of Music starts up? Don't you know that picture? And it's at the beginning. It's when, uh, what's her name, gets there to the house for the first time, and he blows the whistle. He's a ship captain around the, right before World War II starts, or World War I, I can't remember. And, uh, and he blows the World War II, and I'm getting this all over the place. And... <laughs> World War II, and he blows his ship's captain whistle, and he's always out at sea, and, and their mother has died, and they have a housekeeper, and he can't keep housekeepers because he's such a rigid disciplinarian. And when he comes home, he, he gets in the door, and he... He blows his whistle with the signal that means every kid that's under my authority in this house better get down here and line up right now. And they do that. They come in, and they get in rank. All right? The idea, the idea is that there is to be authority in a chain of command. But with dignity doesn't mean that you're the drill sergeant and you oversee with a big stick. I think that that's going a little bit overboard. We go on in our text and he says, the whole reason is for if someone does not know how to manage his household, how will he care for God's church? You see, if he cannot effectively lead a small group of people under his watch, how can he be useful overseeing a large group of people with all of the dynamics and the characteristics and challenges of bringing us all together in unity and to lead well? Listen, churches are complicated. Everybody thinks they know how it ought to be done. Everybody has their opinion. 
Everybody wants this, and then we're called to dwell together in unity. And so we need to have spiritual leadership of integrity that can hold a family together in unity. And when we watch him hold his family together in unity, we know that he's quality, he's qualified to lead the church in unity. This brings a question to mind, and that is, um, and this is somewhat controversial, and that is, is Paul teaching Timothy here, that an elder has to be a married man with children. And I, th- I personally hold the view, it's, it doesn't explicitly say that. The implication is that by and large, I would take it that the norm is that as men grow up, get married, they have kids and family, and you watch that and they're spiritual leaders. The norm is for guys to be married and have kids. Mature Christian leaders who are bachelors and never married or who don't have kids are rare. I wouldn't say it disqualifies them. It's interesting that the word translated for children there is multiple children. So if you're going to argue that a man has to be married with kids to be in the eldership, he would have to have more than one kid based on the text. You would also be saying that Jesus and the Apostle Paul were disqualified to be elders. That Paul is basically saying, I'm not qualified to be an elder in that church, but here's what you should look for. I think it's more a statement of the norm and that as you look at a man, it's likely that he's going to have children and then you watch his home and when he leads his home well and he leads that small group well, then he's, we know that he's got some capacity to lead spiritually at church. But that's an interesting dynamic because there, are, there is a camp of thought, a school of thought that promotes that an elder in the local church has to be married with kids. We would not hold to that here but we recognize that that is the norm for most men. I want to mention a third uh, qualification now, or a third thing here, Uh, third point. We've seen the implication of male headship. We've seen the qualification of proven leadership in the home. That is, that if he can't lead his home, and if his home life's not in order, how can he be expected to lead God's church? The third thing comes from the parallel passage in Titus chapter 1, and it is this the expectation of true discipleship in the home. We have in these qualifications the expectation of true discipleship in the home. Titus chapter 1 is a parallel passage to 1 Timothy chapter 3. That is, it is the same author, the Apostle Paul, who in Timothy is writing to Pastor Timothy at Ephesus a list of criteria for the elders and pastors and leaders of the church. And in Titus, it's the Apostle Paul writing to young Pastor Titus, a contemporary of Timothy, and he's writing him a very similar list of qualifications for the spiritual leadership in the church. And so notice what he adds to the list. Titus chapter 1. He says, I left you in Crete, Titus, so that you might put, verse 5, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, he's allowed to be an elder. Did you get that? Verse 6. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife... And his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. What's he saying here? The word for children there could mean any age. It doesn't necessarily mean young children, which is a good thing because sometimes, you know, your little three-and-a-half-year-old gets out of your hand and goes running across the front of the church and he's got a dirty diaper and, and he's just a mess and you're all embarrassed about your parenting and you think, oh, no, there goes my chance of being an elder in this church. I think everybody understands that, you know, parenting's a challenge and 
We do want to keep our children. I think that our, our children should be an example of, of order and obedience. But we all know that children can disobey and cause a scene. I think the fact that it references that these children must be believers and not open to the charge of debauchery and insubordination. Debauchery and insubordination are not terms that I think of on kids like 12 and under. You know? Debauchery, that's like wicked sin, sinful hearts, a propensity to turn away from the truth and to want to sin and do evil, to be nasty. Insubordination, that's nothing other than rebellion and to have a hard and rebellious heart. I think what the Apostle Paul is pointing out here is our third observation. It is the expectation of true discipleship in the home. The point is that if a man has children and he raises them up and they turn out not to be followers of Christ, then really there's a huge question mark about his ability to go to the church and be expected to raise up disciples of Jesus Christ. If he can't disciple at home, how can he disciple in the church? Now, this raises all kinds of questions, doesn't it? Some of the questions I have answers for, some of the questions I have opinions for, and other questions I just don't know. It's a little bit hard because the Apostle Paul didn't give us ages. So the question, for example, comes to mind, how old of a child are we talking about here? I would say clearly, if a man has teenagers in his home or even into their early 20s, as adolescent goes up to now 26, 27 years of age, they say, and you've got these young people at home, they are clearly, to, if they're living and, you're, and they're under your management, you could even say that. You can leave, sometimes you do that, don't you? Clean this room, management. Right, And that's a biblical term because you are to manage your home. If they're in your home, they're under your management. Unless you have sliced and diced the lease arrangement for their bedroom and they're paying you certain money and it doesn't matter if it's your kid or some other kid from some uh, up the block that's living at your house. My point is that if they're living in your home, they're under your management and therefore if they are not followers of Jesus Christ, you, you are not eligible to be an elder in the local church. That would be my answer. The idea, some people, some translations translate the word for believers to fellowship and is... Uh, um, Excuse me, faithful. And his children are to be faithful. And they argue that to be faithful just means to be cooperative. You know, they come to Sunday school, whatever. They're faithful, but they they aren't really believers in Christ. And the answer to that is, is that that word translated believers, children are believers, Titus 1.6, is better translated believers than faithful. And this same word is translated over and over in our New Testament as believers, and it always means believers in the Lord Christ. It never means somebody who's just a faithful pagan. It never means that. So here's the great challenge. The challenge is to look at a man who's just a great guy, a good teacher, he's hospitable, he loves his wife, and he's got teenagers in his home who are rebellious who don't follow Christ, that man is not in a season where he's to be in spiritual leadership. The other question that comes up is then, how old does, you know, and my answer to that at this point is that if they are under your management and they demonstrate a testimony of faith in Jesus Christ and they're not rebellious or debauched, then you're eligible. When they get out on their own, listen, children are not robots, are they? 
Children are not robots. And when they get out on their own and they're making their own decisions and they want to turn away and reject what you've brought them up under, then I would say at some level that's their business. But when they're under your oversight and under your management, are they giving testimony of faith in Jesus Christ? And are they cooperating with the system? It raises interesting and not so easy questions. It's one reason why I would say that God has given us a plurality of eldership in the local church because there's not cut and dried answers sometimes to these and we bring it to the table and the elders pray and think and discuss and with the multitude of counselors, there's wisdom and we can give guidance and we can say, you know, this is okay, but this is not okay and it's not always all black and white and cut and dried. It's not difficult. But I would say this, churches that have neglected this have paid dearly. Many a pastor and many an elder has had his ministry undermined by rebellious, debauched children and everybody in the congregation knew it and there was a question mark in their mind about the integrity of that man's leadership. It's the same thing back with the standard of male leadership and male headship in the church and in the home. You know, denominations and organizations that have treaded lightly on this, they've kind of poo-pooed this. They've put these lists aside and they've said, no, that's, that's old stuff. That's old school. We don't have to hold the bar. We can allow, for example, women in leadership or women in ordination. You go do a survey and see if I'm not correct in my assumption that mainline denominations and organizations and church groups who have promoted, for example, female leadership or have minimized holding to a standard of godly spiritual integrity in the leadership have been in decline. And when you walk in their churches that are led by women, the men are gone. You see, God has a list here. God has standards and there's reasons that he gave it. And our job is to carefully, lovingly reinforce it. So there's what I think Paul is teaching. He's teaching the implication there by its implicit back in 1 Timothy 3, male headship in the home. There's the qualification of proven leadership in the home. If you can't lead your home, you can't lead the church. You're to manage it well. It's to have an aesthetic appeal. It's to people should look at it and say, wow, that's a good place. They're orderly. That guy has his act together in his home. And then the expectation of true discipleship in the home. Listen, when this, when this doesn't happen well, it is very, very ugly. Do you know that? We have an example. You don't have to turn there. Let me just remind you of a story from the Old Testament. It's 1 Samuel chapter 2, and it's by a guy, and you say, well, Pastor Van, that's not the church. I know that. It's the temple. It's the Old Testament system under a priest who is the spiritual leader of the people, and the priest's name is Eli. You'll recall this guy because this is who Hannah brought her young son Samuel to. Samuel ends up taking the place of spiritual leadership from the sons of this guy. But Eli was a priest in the temple. I take it that overall he was a godly man. He cared about God's word and he cared about obedience when you read 1 Samuel chapter 2, and it's an interesting story, it would, you would do well to reread it this week. He has two adult sons. They've hardened their hearts. Their names are Hophni and Phinehas. And you'll see that they lived in disbelief. They did not believe the word of God, and God called them wicked men. They lived in disbelief. They demonstrated disrespect for the order of the temple and the traditions of the priestly order. 
Their lives were in total disarray. It says that they, they laid at the front of the temple doors and out in broad daylight in open public times laid with the women of the church in sexual immorality. It says when their father Eli came and confronted them that they disobeyed him, they disregarded it. They didn't care. At that point, there's evidence in the verse that God had begun to let their hardened hearts solidify because he was going to put them to death. So one day they go to war. They take the Ark of the Covenant with them. Hophni and Phinehas go along in this pomp and circumstance trying to show that God is with their soldiers. Eli is full of fear. It says that he's an old man, over 80 years old. He's sitting on his stool. We also know that he was probably a un, pretty undisciplined man because he was very, very large. He's sitting on his stool. And God had confronted him about his sons, and he hadn't done very much about it. He was afraid, though, when you look at the text, you see that he trembled for fear more for the ark of God than he did for his own sons. The battle takes place. The runner comes back. He tells old Eli, your sons of Hophni and Phinehas are dead and the ark has been stolen, captured by the enemy. In his grief, essentially over the ark, I think he already knew that his sons were under the judgment of God. It says that he falls off his stool and because of his great weight, he breaks his neck and he dies on the spot. You know what's interesting about this passage? That it is directly because of the disarray of his home that God allows judgment on his sons. Because he did not lead well at home. He was removed from the priesthood. But not only that, the story tells us that though God had told Eli earlier that through the generations they would serve in the priesthood, God said, because of the great wickedness of your home life, I'm shutting that off and I'm going to start a new place, a new plan. And he said, not only will no one ever again serve in the priesthood in your generations to come, but nobody in your generations to come will even grow to an old age. They will all die young. God judged them. It's how serious it is, a spiritual leader, to manage well, to have integrity in his home, in his oversight. I want to say a word to young people briefly. I want you to look up here if you're 39 and under. If you're under the authority of your parent, I want you to listen to me well. I want to tell you something. If you have a mom and a dad who are trying to make you do right, you need to thank God for that. If you have a mom and a dad who are trying to discipline you and they confront you when you do sin and they're trying to point you to Christ, you need to stop doing this. Stop going, all right. Just knock it off. You need to say, Lord, thank you that I have a mom and dad who care about what goes on in this household. Thank you that I've got a father who's trying to manage our home well. And make it easy for them. Would you do that? And you will find that you'll be blessed because of it. Learn the joy of obedience. Learn the joy of church world. Learn the joy of fellowship of believers in Christ. Learn the joy of participating at a young age in all of the activities of church. That your mom and dad lead you to church and you walk in obedience. Learn the joy of a guilt-free conscience at a young age and never violate it. And make it easy for your father to be a spiritual leader in the church 
because his home is in order and you children are godly in Christ Jesus. Parents, I think this text is reason to seek at a young age to lead our children to Christ. Listen, I know there's theological ramifications to this text. We can't save anyone. We're not in charge of God's oversight and conviction. The word of God convicts. We're taught to lead our children to Christ. We're taught clearly in Scripture to transfer truth to the next generation. Make it your goal and your prayer that at a young age, your boys and girls under your watch, your grandkids would receive Christ as Savior. With your spiritual integrity, teach them the joy of what it means to be in church with your Bible open, to go to Sunday school, to be a blessing to your teachers, to walk in the truth. I was thinking about my son Jonathan and something that happened just yesterday. We had to go, uh, uh, we had the joy of attending the local Gideon camp. That's the Bible distribution Gideons. The Gideon camp corn roast down at a pavilion down on the river and uh, over by Bakerton. We get invited because I'm a pastor. And because I'm a pastor, my son Jonathan, who's 14, gets dragged all over the place. I think drug is a word, but he gets dragged all over the place. And, and so yesterday when we were coming home from the corn roast, I, I said, hey, man, how did you do? Did you enjoy it? No, I didn't like it at all. And I, I, I was thinking about this message, and I was thinking about my own life and my dad being a pastor. And, and what is it about a pastor's kid or an elder's kid that would make them resent the spiritual environment in which they grow up? And I said, Jonathan, he took his fishing pole and his tackle box, and he loves to fish, and he stood down on the dock fishing. There were deer in the lawn next door with fawns, and we watched deer and fawns. He loves deer. There was a carrion dinner, and it was a huge meal. They had a big kettle over an open fire of corn in the husk that we were eating. He had butter running down both sides of his chin, and he didn't like it. And it made me think of all the things that I got drugged to when I was a kid. Because my dad was a pastor. I think, what a great privilege to be able to hear the testimony of the old gray heads as they talk about the distribution of God's word. That's a privilege to get to feast yourself. So you're the only 14-year-old there. You get to feast yourself on all this food and everybody thinks it's great that you're there. And you go down to the dock and you get to go fishing and you get to watch deer. You get to get in the car and go home and watch the Olympics. Rough life. (laughs) Rough life. What is that all about? Why would preachers' kids... And elders' kids resent the gospel ministry. Dads and parents, let's teach our children the joy of Christian service, the joy of rescuing the needy, the joy of being called alongside of those who need help, the joy of walking in obedience. And it'll only happen if you model it. Let's bow in prayer. And so, Father, challenge our hearts today. When it comes to these issues with our children, it can be very difficult and heartbreaking. Father, for those here today who have children who might be far from you, living in debauchery and rebellion, Father, would you break those kids down? Tonight, would you break them down and break their heart and may parents receive phone calls tonight and this week from children who are repenting of their sin, turning back to their parents and turning back to Christ. Father, for men here who might have a longing for spiritual service at a higher level and a more formal level, 
but their children are far from you, would you heal those relationships? Father, for the parents of young children here, just beginning their parenting processes, would you please put your hand of blessing upon them? Would you show them how to lead their children to Christ at a young age? Would you show them how to lead their children in the, in the joy of Christian service? Father, help us to have your blessing because we are blessable. Thank you for the godly spiritual leaders that have characterized Fellowship Bible Church for these 20 years. May it ever be so. Strengthen us in our walk, Lord. Show us how to meet needs. Show us how to develop these qualities in our lives. We need your help. We need your wisdom. We need your grace. Thank you for your love and your faithfulness. Most of all, thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, our sin bearer, carried our sin to the cross, gave us his righteousness. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.